and welcome to the Dead Authors Society. I'm Artemis Rosier. Today, we celebrate Frank Herbert. Date of death, February 11th, 1986. Rest in peace. Chapter 24 Arrakis is a fierce planet, the Baron said. Storm losses can. We both know the figure for storm accretion, Watt said. What if he has lost 30,000? The Baron demanded, and blood darkened his face. By your count, Watt said. He killed 15,000 over two years while losing twice that number. You say the Sadakar accounted for another 20,000, possibly a few more, and I've seen the transport manifest for their return from Arrakis. If they killed 20,000, they lost almost five for one. Why won't you face these figures, Baron, and understand what they mean? The Baron spoke in a coldly measured cadence. This is your job, Mintat. What do they mean? I gave you Duncan Idaho's head count on the siege he visited. Watt said, It all fits. If they had just 250 such siege communities, their population would be about 5 million. My best estimate is that they had at least twice that many communities. You scatter your population on such a planet. Tin million. The Baron's jowls quivered with amazement. At least. The Baron pursed his fat lips. The beady eyes stared without wavering at Huat. Is this true Mintat computation? He wondered. How could this be and no one suspect? We haven't even cut heavily into their birth rate growth figure. Huat said. We just weeded out some of their less successful specimens, leaving the strong to grow stronger, just like on Salusa Secundus. Salusa Secundus! The Baron barked. What has this to do with the Emperor's prison planet? A man who survives Salusa Secundus starts out being tougher than most others. Huat said, when you had the very best of military training, Nonsense! By your argument, I could recruit from among the Fremen after the way they've been oppressed by my nephew. Huat spoke in a mild voice. Don't you oppress any of your troops? Well, I... But oppression is a relative thing, Huat said. Your fighting men are much better off than those around them, huh? <laughs> They see unpleasant alternative to being soldiers of the Baron. <laughs> the Baron fell silent, eyes unfocused. The possibilities had Raban unwittingly given House Harkonnen its ultimate weapon. Presently, he said, How could you be sure of the loyalty of such recruits? I would take them in small groups, not larger than platoon strength. Hawat said, I'd remove them from their oppressive situation and isolate them with a training catter of people who understood their background. 
preferably people who had preceded them from the same oppressive situation, then I'd fill them with the mystique that their planet had really been a secret training ground to produce just such superior beings as themselves. And all the while, I'd show them what such superior beings could earn. Rich living, beautiful women, fine mansions, whatever they desired. The Baron began to nod the way the Sardaukar live at home. The recruits come to believe in time that such a place as Seleucus Cundus is justified because it reduced them, the elite, the commonest Sardaukar trooper lives a life in many respects as exalted as that of any member of a great house. Such an idea, the Baron whispered. You begin to share my suspicions. Watt said, Where did such a thing start? The Baron asked. Ah, yes. Where did House Corino originate? Were there people on Seleucus Secundus before the Emperor sent his first contingents of prisoners there? Even the Duke Leto, a cousin on the distaff side, never knew for sure. Such questions are not encouraged. The Baron's eyes glazed with thought. Yes, a very carefully kept secret. They'd use every device of. Besides, what's there to conceal? Awad asked. That the Padishah Emperor has a prison planet? Everyone knows this, that he has Count Finrig. The Baron blurted. Watt broke off, studied the Baron with a puzzled frown. What of Count Fenric? At my nephew's birthday several years ago, the Baron said, This imperial popinjay, Count Fenric, came as official observer and to uh, conclude a business arrangement between the Emperor and myself. So, I... Ah, uh, during one of our conversations, I believe I said something about making a prison planet of Arrakis. Finrig, what did you say exactly? Hawat asked. Exactly. That was quite a while ago, and... My Lord Baron, if you wish to make the best use of my services, you must give me adequate information. Wasn't this conversation recorded? The Baron's face darkened with anger. You're as bad as Peter. I don't like these. Peter is no longer with you, my lord, Hawat said. As to that, whatever did happen to Peter, he became too familiar, too demanding of me. The Baron said, You assure me you don't waste a useful man. Hawat said, Will you waste me by threats and quibbling? We were discussing what you said to Count Finric. Slowly, the Baron composed his features. When the time comes, he thought, I'll remember his manner with me, yes. I will remember. One moment, the Baron said, and he thought back to the meeting in his great hall. It helped visualize the cone of silence in which they had stood. I said something like this, the Baron said. The Emperor knows a certain amount of killing has always been an arm of business. 
I was referring to our workforce losses. Then, I said something about considering another solution to the Iraqian problem, and I said the Emperor's prison planet inspired me to emulate him. Which blood? Awad snapped. What did Fenric say? That's when he began questioning me about you. Awad sat back, closed his eyes and thought. So that's why they started looking into Arrakis. He said, well, the thing's done. He opened his eyes. They must have spies all over Arrakis by now, two years. But certainly my innocent suggestion that nothing is innocent in an emperor's eyes. What were your instructions to Raban? Merely that he should teach Arrakis to fear us. Hawat shook his head. You know have two alternatives, Baron. You can kill off the natives, wipe them out entirely, or waste an entire workforce. Would you prefer to have the Emperor in those great houses he can still swing behind him, come in here and perform a corrediment, scrape out Gaiety Prime like a hollow gourd? The Baron studied his mentat then. He wouldn't dare. Wouldn't he? The Baron's lips quivered. What is your alternative? Abandon your dear nephew, Raban. Abandon. The Baron broke off, stared at Hawat. Send him no more troops, no aid of any kind. Don't answer his messages other than to say that you've heard of the terrible way he's handled things on Arrakis and you intend to take corrective measures as soon as you're able. I'll arrange to have some of your messages intercepted by Imperial spies. But what of the spice, the revenues, the demand your baronial Profits, but be careful how you make your demands require fixed sums of Raban weaken. The Baron turned his hands, palms up. But how can I be certain that my weasel nephew isn't? We still have our spies on Arrakis. Tell Raban he either meets the spice quotas you set him, or he'll be replaced. I know my nephew, the Baron said. This would only make him oppress the population even more. Of course he will. Huat snapped. You don't want that stopped now. You merely want your own hands clean. Let Raban make your Seleucus Secundus for you. There's no need even to send him any prisoners. He has all the population required. If Raban is driving his people to meet your spice quotas, then the Emperor needs suspect no other motive. There's reason enough for putting the planet on the rack, and you, Baron, will not show by word or action that there's any other reason for this. The Baron could not keep the sly tone of admiration out of his voice. Ah, what? You are a devious one. Now, how do we move into Arrakis and make use of what Raban prepares? That's the simplest thing of all, Baron. If you set each year's quota a bit higher than the one before, matters will soon reach ahead there. Production will drop off. You can remove Raban and take over yourself to correct the mess. It fits, the Baron said. But I can feel myself tiring of all this. I'm preparing another to take over Arrakis for me. 
Hoath studied the fat, round face across from him. Slowly, the old soldier spy began to nod his head. Fade Rotha, he said. So that's the reason for the oppression now. You're very devious yourself, Baron. Perhaps we can incorporate these two schemes, yes. Your fate Rotha can go to Arrakis as their savior. He can win the populace. Yes. The Baron smiled, and behind his smile he asked himself, Now how does this fit in with Hawat's personal scheming? And Hawat, seeing that he was dismissed, arose and left the red-walled room. As he walked, he could not put down the disturbing unknowns that cropped into every computation about Arrakis, his new religious leader that Gurney Halleck hinted at from his hiding place among the smugglers, this Mautib. Perhaps I should not have told the Baron to let this religion flourish where it will, even among the folk of Pan and Graben, he told himself, but it's well known that repression makes religion flourish. And he thought about Halleck's reports on famine battle tactics. The tactics smacked of Halleck himself in Idaho and even of Hawat. Did Idaho survive? He asked himself. But this was a futile question. He did not yet ask himself if it was possible that Paul had survived. He knew the Baron was convinced that all Atreides were dead. The Bene Gesserit which had been his weapon, the Baron admitted, and that could only mean an end to all, even to the woman's own son. What a poisonous hate she must have had for the Atreides, he thought. Something like the hate I hold for this Baron. Will my blow be as final and complete as hers? There is an all things a pattern that is part of our universe. It has symmetry, elegance, and grace. Those qualities you find always in that which the true artist captures. You can find it in the turning of the seasons, in the way sand trails along a ridge, in the branch clusters of the creosote bush or the pattern of its leaves. We try to copy these patterns in our lives, in our societies seeking the rhythms, the dances, the forms that comfort, yet it is possible to see peril in the finding of ultimate perfection. It is clear that the ultimate pattern contains its own fixity. In such perfection, all things move toward death. From the Collected Sayings of Maudib by the Princess Rulian. Paul Maudib remembered that there had been a meal heavy with spice essence. He clung to this memory because it was an anchor point and he could tell himself from this vantage that his immediate experiences must be a dream. I am a theater of processes, he told himself. I am a prey to the imperfect vision, to the race consciousness and its terrible purpose. Yet, he could not escape the fear that he had somehow overrun himself, lost his position in time, so that past and future and present mingled without distinction. It was a kind of visual fatigue, and it came, he knew, 
and the constant necessity of holding the prescient future as a kind of memory that was in itself a thing intrinsically of the past. Chani prepared the meal for me, he told himself, yet Chani was deep in the south, in the cold country where the sun was hot, secreted in one of the new seat strongholds safe with their son, Leto II. Or was that a thing yet to happen? No, he reassured himself, for Alia the Strange One, his sister, gone there with his mother and with Chani, a twenty-thumper trip into the south, riding a reverend mother's palanquin fixed to the back of a wild maker. He shied away from the thought of riding the giant worms, asking himself, or is Alia yet to be born? I was on Razia, Paul recalled. We went raiding to recover the water of our dead in Arachian. I found the remains of my father in the funeral pyre. I enshrined the skull of my father in a Fremen rock mound, overlooking Hog Pass. Was that a thing yet to be? My wounds are real, Paul told himself. My scars are real. The shrine of my father's skull is real. Still, in the dreamlike state, Paul remembered that Hara. Jameis's wife had intruded on him once to say there'd been a fight in the siege corridor. That had been the interim siege before the women and children had been sent into the deep south. Hara had stood there in the entrance to the inner chamber, the black wings of her hair tied back by water rings on a chain. She had held aside the chamber's hangings and told him that Johnny had just killed someone. This happened, Paul told himself. This was real, not born out of its time and subject to change. Paul remembered he had rushed out to find Chani standing beneath the yellow globes of the corridor, clad in a brilliant blue wrap-around robe with a hood thrown back, a flush of exertion on her elfin features. She had been sheathing her Chris knife. A huddled group had been hurrying away down the corridor with a burden. And Paul remembered telling himself, you always know when they're carrying a body. Johnny's water rings, worn openly in siege on a cord around her neck, tinkled as she turned toward him. Johnny, what is this? He asked. I dispatched one who came to challenge you in single combat, Usul. You killed him? Yes, but perhaps I should have left him for Hara. And Paul recalled how the faces of the people around them had showed appreciation for these words. Even Hara had laughed. But he came to challenge me. You trained me yourself in the weirding way, Usul. Certainly, but you shouldn't. I was born in the desert, Usul. I know how to use a Chris knife. He suppressed his anger, tried to talk reasonably. This may all be true, Chani, but I am no longer a child hunting scorpions in the siege by the light of a hand globe, Usul. I do not play games. Paul glared at her, caught by the odd ferocity beneath her casual attitude. He was not worthy, Usul, Chani said. I'd not disturb your meditations with the likes of him. She moved closer, 
looking at him out of the corner of her eyes, dropping her voice so that only he might hear. And beloved, when it's learned that a challenger may face me and be brought to shameful death by Maudib's woman, there'll be fewer challengers. Yes. Paul told himself that had certainly happened. It was true past, and the number of challengers testing the new blade of Maudib did drop dramatically. Somewhere, in a world not of the dream, there was a hint of motion, the cry of a nightbird. A dream, Paul reassured himself. It's the spice meal. Still, there was about him a feeling of abandonment. He wondered if it might be possible that his rough spirit had slipped over somehow into the world where the Fremen believed he had his true existence, into the Alam al-Mithal, world of similitudes, that metaphysical realm where all physical limitations were removed, and he knew fear at the thought of such a place because removal of all limitations meant removal of all points of reference. In the landscape of a myth, he could not orient himself and say, I am I, because I am here. His mother had said once, The people are divided, some of them, and how they think of you. I must be waking from the dream, Paul told himself, for this had happened. These words from his mother, the Lady Jessica, who was now a reverend mother of the Fremen, these words passed through reality. Jessica was fearful of the religious relationship between himself and the Fremen, Paul knew. She didn't like the fact that the people of both Siege and Graven referred to Maudib as him, and she went questioning among the tribes, sending out her Sayadina spies, collecting their answers and brooding on them. She had quoted a Bene Gesserit proverb to him, when religion and politics travel in the same cart, the writers believe nothing can stand in their way. Their movement become headlong. Faster, faster, faster. They put aside all thought of obstacles and forget that a precipice does not show itself to the man in a blind rush until it's too late. Paul recalled that he had sat there in his mother's quarters, in the inner chamber shrouded by dark hangings with their surfaces covered by woven patterns out of Fremen mythology. He had sat there, hearing her out, noting the way she was always observing, even when her eyes were lowered. Her oval face had new lines in it at the corners of the mouth, but the hair was still like polished bronze. The wide-set green eyes, though, hid beneath their overcast of spice-imbued blue. The Fremen have a simple practical religion, he said. Nothing about religion is simple, she warned. But Paul, seeing the clouded future that still hung over them, found himself swayed by anger. He could only say, Religion unifies our forces, it's our mystique. You deliberately cultivate this air, this bravara, she charged. You never cease indoctrinating. Thus, you yourself taught me, he said. But she had been full of contentions and arguments that day. It had been the day 
of the circumcision ceremony for little Lido. Paul had understood some of the reasons for her upset. She had never accepted his liaison, the marriage of youth, with Chani. But Chani had produced an Atreides son, and Jessica had found herself unable to reject the child with the mother. Jessica had stirred finally under his stare, said, You think me an unnatural mother? Of course not. I see the way you watch me when I'm with your sister. You don't understand about your sister. I know why Alia is different, he said. She was unborn, part of you. When you change the water of life, she... You know nothing of it. And Paul, suddenly unable to express the knowledge gained out of its time, said only, I don't think you unnatural. She saw his distress, said, There is a thing, son. Yes. I do love your Chani. I accept her. This was real. Paul told himself, this wasn't the imperfect vision to be changed by the twistings out of time's own birth. The reassurance gave him a new hold on his world. Bits of solid reality began to dip through the dream state into his awareness. He knew suddenly that he was in an Arig, a desert camp. Chani had planted their still tent on flower sand for its softness. That could only mean Chani was nearby. Chani, his soul, Chani, Sehaya, sweet as the desert spring, Chani, up from the palmaries of the deep south. Now, he remembered her singing a sand shanty to him in the time for sleep. Oh, my soul, have no taste for paradise this night, and I swear by Shia. You will go there, obedient to my love. And she had sung the walking song lovers shared on the sand, its rhythm like the drag of the dunes against the feet. Tell me of thine eyes, and I will tell thee of thy heart. Tell me of thy Tell thee of thy waking. Tell me of thy desires, and I will tell thee of thy need. He had heard someone strumming a balisette in another tent, and he thought then of Gurney Halleck. Reminded by the familiar instrument, he had thought of Gurney, whose face he had seen in a smuggler band, but who had not seen him could not see him, or know of him lest that inadvertently lead the Harkonnens to the son of the duke they had killed. But the style of the player in the night, the distinctiveness of the fingers on the balisette's strings, brought the real musician back to Paul's memory. It had been Shot the Leaper, captain of the Fadikin, leader of the Death Commandos who guarded Maudib. We are in the desert, Paul remembered. We are in the central erg beyond the Harkonnen patrols. 
I'm here to walk the sand, lure a maker, and mount him by my own cunning, that I may be a Fremen entire. He felt now the Maula pistol at his belt, the Chris knife. He felt the silence surrounding him. It was that special pre-morning silence when the night birds had gone and the day creatures had not yet signaled their alertness to their enemy, the sun. You must ride the sand in the light of day that Shai Halud shall see and know you have no fear, Stilker had said. Thus, we turn our time around and set ourselves to sleep this night. Quietly, Paul sat up, feeling the looseness of a slacked stillsuit around his body, the shadowed stilt beyond, so softly he moved, yet Chani heard him. She spoke from the tense gloom, another shadow there. It's not yet for light, beloved. Zahaya, he said, speaking with half a laugh in his voice. You call me your desert spring, she said, but this day I'm thy god. I'm the Seyadina who watches that the rites be obeyed. He began tightening his still suit. You told me once the words of the Kitab Alabar, he said. You told me, woman is thy field, go then to thy field and till it. I am the mother of thy firstborn, she agreed. He saw her in the grayness matching him movement for movement, securing her still suit for the open desert. You should get all the rest you can, she said. He recognized her love for him speaking then and chided her gently. Sayadina of the Watch does not caution or warn the candidate. She slid across to his side, touched his cheek with her palm. Today, I am both the Watcher and the woman. You should have left this duty to another, he said. Waiting is bad enough at best, she said. I'd sooner be at thy side. He kissed her palm before securing the face flap of his suit then turned and cracked the seal of the tent. The air that came into them held the chill, not-quite dryness that would precipitate trace dew in the dawn. With it came the smell of a pre-spice mass, the mass they had detected off to the northeast, and that told them there would be a maker nearby. Paul crawled through the sphincter opening, stood on the sand and stretched the sleep from his muscles. A faint green-pearl luminescence etched the eastern horizon. The tints of his troop were small false dunes around him in the gloom. He saw movement off to the left, the guard, and knew they had seen him. They knew the peril he faced this day. Each Fremen had faced it. They gave him this last few moments of isolation now that he might prepare himself. It must be done today. He told himself. He thought of the power he wielded in the face of the pogrom, the old men who sent their sons to him to be trained in the weirding way of battle, the old men who listened to him now in council and followed his plans, the men who returned to pay him that highest Fremen compliment. Your plan worked, Maudim. Yet, the meanest and the smallest of the Fremen warriors could do a thing that he had never done. Paul knew his leadership suffered from the omnipresent knowledge of this difference between them. He had not ridden the Maker. 
Oh, he'd gone up with the others for training trips and raids, but he had not made his own voyage. Until he did, his world was bounded by the abilities of others. No true Fremen could permit this. Until he did this thing himself, even the great Southlands, the area some twenty thumpers beyond the Erg, were denied him unless he ordered a palanquin and rode like a reverend mother or one of the sick and wounded. Memory returned to him from his wrestling with his inner awareness during the night. He saw a strange parallel here. He mastered the Maker. His rule was strengthened. He mastered the inward eye. This carried its own measure of command, but beyond them both lay the clouded area, the great unrest, where all the universe seemed embroiled. The differences and the ways he comprehended the universe haunted him. Accuracy matched with inaccuracy. He saw it in situ, yet when it was born, when it came into the pressures of reality, the now had its own life and grew with its own subtle differences. Terrible purpose remained. Race consciousness remained. And all over loomed the jihad, bloody and wild. Johnny joined him outside the tent, hugging her elbows, looking up at him from the corners of her eyes, the way she did when she studied his mood. Tell me again about the waters of thy birth world, Uso, she said. He saw that she was trying to distract him, ease his mind of tensions before the deadly test. It was growing lighter, and he noted that some of his fatakin were already striking their tents. I'd rather you told me about the siege and about our son, he said. Does Arlito yet hold my mother in his palm? It's Alia he holds as well, she said, and he grows rapidly. He'll be a big man. What's it like in the south? He asked. When you ride the maker, you'll see for yourself, she said. But I wish to see it first, through your eyes. It's powerfully lonely, she said. He touched the Nizani scarf at her forehead, where it protruded from her steel suit cap. Why will you not talk about the siege? I have talked about it. The siege is a lonely place without our men. It's a place of work. We labor in the factories and the potting rooms. There are weapons to be made, poles to plant, and we may forecast the weather, spice, to collect for the brides. There are dunes to be planted to make them grow and to anchor them. There are fabrics and rugs to make fuel cells to charge. There are children to train that the tribe's strength may never be lost. Is nothing then pleasant in the siege? He asked. The children are pleasant. We observe the rites. We have sufficient food. Sometimes one of us may come north to be with her man. Life must go on. My sister, Alia, is she accepted yet by the people? Johnny turned toward him in the growing dawnlight. Her eyes bored into him. It's a thing to be discussed another time, beloved. Let us discuss it now. You should conserve your energies for the test, she said. He saw that he had touched something sensitive, hearing the withdrawal in her voice. The unknown brings its own worries. He said. Presently she nodded, said, There's yet 
misunderstanding because of Alia's strangeness. The women are fearful because a child little more than an infant talks of things that only an adult should know. They do not understand the change in the womb that made Alia different. There is trouble, he asked, and he thought, I've seen visions of trouble over Alia. Johnny looked toward the growing line of the sunrise. Some of the women banded to appeal the Reverend Mother. They demanded she exorcise the demon in her daughter. They quoted the scripture, Suffer not a witch to live among us. And what did my mother say to them? She recited the law and sent the women away abashed. She said, If Alia incites trouble, it is the fault of authority for not foreseeing and preventing the trouble. And she tried to explain how the change had worked on Alia in the womb, but the women were angry because they had been embarrassed. They went away muttering. There will be trouble because of Alia, he thought. A crystal blowing of sand touched the exposed portions of his face, bringing the scent of the pre-spice mass. El Sayol, the rain of the sand that brings the morning, he said. He looked out across the gray light of the desert landscape, the landscape beyond pity, the sand that was formed, absorbed in itself. Dry lightning streaked a dark corner to the south, sign that a storm had built up its static charge there. The roll of thunder boomed long after. The voice that beautifies the land, Johnny said. More of his men were stirring out of their tents, Guards were coming in from the rims. Everything around him moved smoothly in the ancient routine that required no orders. Give as few orders as possible. His father had told him once, long ago. Once you've given orders on a subject, you must always give orders on that subject. The Fremen knew this rule instinctively. The troop's watermaster began the morning shanty, adding to it now the call for the right to initiate a sand rider. The world is a caucus, the man chanted, his voice wailing across the dunes. Who can turn away the angel of death? What Shai Halud has decreed must be. Paul listened, recognizing that these were the words that also began the death chant of his fedkin, the words the death commandos recited as they buried themselves into battle. Will there be a rock shrine here this day to mark the passing of another soul? Paul asked himself. Will the Fremen stop here in the future, each to add another stone and think on Mount Deep, who died in this place? He knew this was among the alternatives today, a fact along lines of the future radiating from this position in time-space. The imperfect vision plagued him. The more he resisted his terrible purpose and fought against the coming of the Jihad, the greater the turmoil that wove through his prescience. His entire future was becoming like a river hurtling toward a chasm, the violent nexus beyond which all was fog and clouds. Stilgar approaches, Chani said. I must stand apart now, beloved. Now I must be Sayadina and observe the right. That 
it may be reported truly in the Chronicles. She looked up at him, and for a moment her reserve slipped. Then she had herself under control. When this is past, I shall prepare thy breakfast with my own hands, she said. She turned away. Stilger moved toward him across the flower sand, stirring up little dust puddles. The dark niches of his eyes remained steady on Paul with their untamed stare. The glimpse of black beard above the still suit mask, lines of craggy cheeks, could have been wind etched from the native rock for all their movement. The man carried Paul's banner on its staff, the green and black banner with a water tube in the staff that already was a legend in the land. Half pridefully, Paul thought, I cannot do the simplest thing without its becoming a legend. They will mark how I parted from Chani, how I greet Stilgar. Every move I make this day, live or die, it is a legend. I must not die. Then it will be only legend and nothing to stop the jihad. Stilgar planted the staff in the sand beside Paul, dropped his hands to his side. The blue within blue eyes remained level and intent, and Paul thought how his own eyes already were assuming this mask of color from the spice. They denied us the Hajj, Stilgar said with ritual solemnity. As Chani had taught him, Paul responded, Who can deny a Fremen the right to walk or ride where he wills? I am a knave, Stilgar said, never to be taken alive. I am a leg of the death tripod that will destroy our foes. Silence settled over them. Paul glanced at the other Fremen scattered over the sand beyond Stilgar, the way they stood without moving for this moment of personal prayer, and he thought of how the Fremen were a people whose living consisted of a killing, an entire people who had lived with rage and grief all of their days, never once considering what might take the place of either, except for a dream with which Liet Kynes had infused them before his death. Where is the Lord who led us through the land of desert and of pits? Stilgar asked. He is ever with us, the Fremen chanted. Stilgar squared his shoulders, stepped closer to Paul and lowered his voice. Now remember what I told you. Do it simply and directly, nothing fancy. Among our people, we ride the Maker at the age of twelve. You are more than six years beyond that age, and not born to this life. You don't have to impress anyone with your courage. We know you are brave. All you must do is call the Maker and ride him. I will remember, Paul said. See that you do. I'll not have you shame my teaching. Stilgar pulled a plastic rod about a meter long from beneath his robe. The thing was pointed at one end, had a spring-wound clapper at the other end. I prepared this thumper myself. It's a good one. Take it. Paul felt the warm smoothness of the plastic as he accepted the thumper. She shockly has your hooks, Stilgar said. I'll hand them to you as you step out onto that dune over there. He pointed to his right. Call a big maker, Usul, 
Show us the way. Paul marked the tone of Stilger's voice, half ritual and half that of a worried friend. In that instant, the sun seemed to bound above the horizon. The sky took on the silvered gray-blue that warned this would be a day of extreme heat and dryness, even for Arrakis. It is the time of the scalding day, Stilger said, and now his voice was entirely ritual. Go, Usul, and ride the Maker. Travel the sand as a leader of men. Paul saluted his banner, noting how the green and black flag hung limply now that the dawn wind had died. He turned toward the dune Stilker had indicated, a dirty tan slope with an S-track crest. Already, most of the troop was moving out in the opposite direction, climbing the other dune that had sheltered their camp. One roped figure remained in Paul's path, Shishakli, a squad leader of the Fedkin, only his slope-lidded eyes visible between still suit, cap, and mask. Shishakli presented two thin, whip-like shafts as Paul approached. The shafts were about a meter and a half long with glistening plasteel hoods at one end, roughened at the other end for a firm grip. Paul accepted them both in his left hand, as required by the ritual. They are my own hooks, Shishakli said in a husky voice. They never have failed. Paul nodded, maintaining the necessary silence, moved past the man and up the dune slope. At the crest, he glanced back, saw the troops gathering like a flight of insects, their robes fluttering. He stood alone now, on the sandy ridge, with only the horizon in front of him, the flat and unmoving horizon. This was a good dune Stilger chosen, higher than its companions for the viewpoint vantage. Stooping, Paul planted the thumper deep into the windward face where the sand was compacted and would give maximum transmission to the drumming. Then, he hesitated, reviewing the lessons, reviewing the life and death necessities that faced him. When he threw the latch, the thumper would begin its summons. Across the sand, a giant worm, a maker, would hear and come to the drumming. With the whip-like hook staffs, Paul knew he could mount the maker's high, curving back for as long as the forward edge of a worm's ring segment was held open by a hook, open to admit a brace of sand into the more sensitive interior. The creature would not retreat beneath the desert. It would, in fact, roll its gigantic body to bring the opened segment as far away from the desert surface as possible. I am a sand rider, Paul told himself. He glanced down at the hooks in his left hand, thinking that they had only to shift those hooks down the curve of a maker's immense side to make the creature roll and turn, guiding it where he willed. He had seen it done. He had been helped up the side of a worm for a short ride in training. The captive worm could be ridden until it lay exhausted and quiescent upon the desert's surface, and a new maker must be summoned. Once he was past this test, Paul knew he was qualified to make the twenty-thumper journey into the Southland, to rest and restore himself into the South the women and the families had been hidden from the pogrom among the new palmeries and siege warrens. 
He lifted his head and looked to the south, reminding himself that the maker summoned wild from the erg was an unknown quantity. And the one who summoned it was equally unknown to this test. You must gauge the approaching maker carefully, Stilker had explained. You must stand close enough that you can mount it as it passes, yet not so close that it engulfs you. With abrupt decision, Paul released the thumper's latch. The clapper began revolving, and the summons drummed through the sand, a measured lump, lump, lump. He straightened, scanning the horizon, remembering Stilger's words. Judge the line of approach carefully. Remember, a worm seldom makes an unseen approach to a thumper. Listen all the same. You may often hear it before you see it. And Chani's words of caution whispered at night when her fear for him overcame her, filled his mind. When you take your stand along the maker's path, you must remain utterly still. You must think like a patch of sand, hide beneath your cloak, and become a little dune in your very essence. Slowly, he scanned the horizon listening, watching for the signs he had been taught. It came from the southeast a distant hissing, a sand whisper. Presently, he saw the faraway outline of the creature's track against the dawn light and realized he had never before seen a maker this large, never heard of one this size. It appeared to be more than half a league long, and the rise of the sand wave at its cresting head was like the approach of a mountain. This is nothing I've seen by vision or in life. Paul cautioned himself. He hurried across the path of the thing to take his stand, caught up entirely by the rushing needs of this moment. Control the coinage and the courts. Let the rabble have the rest. Thus, the Padishah Emperor advises you. He tells you, if you want prophets, you must rule. There is truth in these words, but I ask myself, who are the rabble and who are the ruled? Odib's secret message to Lansrod from Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Aurelian. A thought came unbidden to Jessica's mind. Paul will be undergoing his Sandrider test at any moment now. They try to conceal this fact from me, but it's obvious. And Johnny has gone on some mysterious errand. Jessica sat in her resting chamber, catching a moment of quiet between the night's classes. It was a pleasant chamber, but not as large as the one she had enjoyed in Siege de Burr before their flight from the pogrom. Still, this place had thick rugs on the floor, soft cushions, a low coffee table near at hand multicolored hangings on the walls and soft yellow glow globes overhead. The room was permeated with the distinctive acrid furry odor of a Fremen siege that she had come to associate with a sense of security. Yet, she knew she would never overcome a feeling of being in an alien place. It was the harshness that the rugs and hangings attempted to conceal. A faint, tinkling, drumming, slapping penetrated to the resting chamber. Jessica knew it for a birth celebration, probably Zubiez. Her time was near. 
and Jessica knew she'd see the baby soon enough, a blue-eyed cherub brought to the Reverend Mother for blessing. She knew also that her daughter, Alia, would be at the celebration and would report on it. It was not yet time for the nightly prayer of parting. They wouldn't have started a birth celebration near the time of ceremony that mourned the slave raids of Portran, Belatagius, Rossick, and Harmanthib. Jessica sighed. She knew she was trying to keep her thoughts off her son and the dangers he faced. The pit traps with their poisoned barbs, the Harkonnen raids, although these were growing fewer as the Fremen took their toll of aircraft and raiders with the new weapons Paul had given them, the natural dangers of the desert, makers and thirst and dust chasms. She thought of calling for coffee, and with the thought came that ever-present awareness of paradox and the Fremen way of life. How well they lived in these siege caverns compared to the grab and pions, yet how much more they endured in the open hajar of the desert than anything the Harakonin bondsmen endured. A dark hand inserted itself through the hangings beside her, deposited a cup upon the table, and withdrew. From the cup arose the aroma of spiced coffee, an offering from the birth celebration, Jessica thought. She took the coffee and sipped it, smiling at herself. In what other society of our universe, she asked herself, could a person of my station accept an anonymous drink and quaff that drink without fear? I could alter any poison now before it did me harm, of course. But the donor doesn't realize this. She drained the cup, feeling the energy and lift of its contents. Hot and delicious, and she warned what other society would have such a natural regard for her privacy and comfort that the giver would intrude only enough to deposit the gift and not inflict her with the donor. Respect and love had sent the gift with only a slight tinge of fear. Another element of the incident forced itself into her awareness. She had thought of coffee, and it had appeared. There was nothing of telepathy here, she knew. It was the Tao, the oneness of the siege community, a compensation from the subtle poison of the spice diet they shared. The great mass of the people could never hope to attain the enlightenment the spice seed brought to her. They had not been trained and prepared for it. Their minds rejected what they could not understand or encompass. Still, they felt and reacted sometimes like a single organism. And the thought of coincidence never entered their minds. As Paul passed his test on the sand, Jessica asked herself, He's capable, but accident can strike down even the most capable. listening to the Dead Authors Society. Be sure to follow for more content posted several days a week.